verses 1 through 11. You'll notice the sermon title is Our Hope in Christ's Return. That actually was from last week. I did change the text. We forgot to change the title. Uh, we're looking tonight, rather, at the warning of Christ's return because our passage also has to do tonight with Christ's return, although uh, looking at it from a little different perspective. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father, we do pray, uh, as we study your word tonight, uh, that... Uh, we would be encouraged and built up by your word, uh, as well as encouraging and strengthening one another. Father, we pray that you would bless uh, and use to our growth in Christ this time in your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday night, uh, from chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, we looked at the comfort and the hope that we derive from our anticipation of Christ's return and the resurrection that will accompany that, as Paul, uh, not necessarily answering every question we could possibly have, uh, and yet answering the need, the pastoral need of the moment, addressing the, the, the hearts of those who have had loved ones to die, explains that Christ's return gives us comfort, gives us hope in the face of the death of those that we love, those who, uh, as he put it, are asleep, asleep in the Lord. Uh, And so we can encourage one another because death does not have the final word. Well, Paul continues on this theme of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second advent, the parousia, if you want to use the Greek word that Paul uses, and you'll sometimes hear used to refer to the second coming of Christ, the parousia. Uh, However, in this passage, he's looking at it from a little different point of view. Uh, Here, he's not writing about so much what Christ's death or Christ's return has to do with those who have died, but what Christ's return has to do with those of us who are alive at his return. And so, knowing that Christ will return prompts us then to live accordingly. When I look down, it gets louder. Well, what does he say? Well, as we look at it, first of all, as he talks about the warning of Christ's return, warning in the sense of of making us aware of it, of how we should live because of it, he speaks in the first place of the suddenness of Christ's return. Look at verse 1. 
Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, and sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Well, as Paul writes to them here, he first of all acknowledges that they should know this. And there's certainly plenty to indicate that the return of our Lord Jesus uh, would be uh, at a time that is not known. Verse 1. Concerning times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. And perhaps he's anticipating questions. He's already talked about Jesus' return. And perhaps the the inevitable question that pops up in their minds is when? When will this happen? Uh, We know that Jesus and his disciples uh, addressed this question. Jesus himself said in in chapter 13 of Mark's gospel uh, that no one, not even he himself, knew the date of his return, only his Father in heaven. And you'll recall that Jesus, uh, prior to his ascension to the right hand of the Father, after he completed his earthly ministry, including his post-resurrection ministry and appearances, uh, was about to ascend, and the disciples uh, asked him, "You know, are, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, you have no need to know times or seasons that the Father himself has established. Jesus is not answering questions about time. And so Paul is basically answering the same questions here, having to do with when. He says, you have no need to have anything written to you for, verse 2, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, there's two ideas here that we find in Scripture. Uh, One is is the concept or the the phrase, the day of the Lord. Now, that goes all the way back into the Old Testament. Um, If you look back at Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6, uh, which 13 and following chapters concerned with judgment on the various nations of the day, and Isaiah 13, 6, uh, we read, Whale, not W-E-L-L, Whale, which where I come from could be what it was, Whale. Uh, but Whale, W-A-I-L, uh, to lament. For the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Well, when is this happening? The day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Any number of references, just um, uh, one other would be Amos. Uh, The prophet Amos in the Old Testament, chapter 5, verse 18 He says uh, in 5.18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Now he's writing here to those who, who are uh, wicked uh, and yet had... A religious veneer uh, seemed to act as though what they wanted was the day of the Lord. And Amos says, why do you want the day of the Lord? 
that won't be a, a day of, of happiness for you. That will be a, a day of judgment. That will be jumping out of the frying pan into the fire, to use a modern analogy. Um, Amos, is, he leans, leans his hand on the wall and a snake bites him. We'd say he went from the frying pan into the fire. Things went from bad to worse. Why do you want the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord in the Old Testament was the day of reckoning, the day of judgment, uh, the day of giving an account, the day when the debt comes due. And, uh, and so that's a well-known expression. And when Paul uses that, he's drawing from that Old Testament background. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that day of reckoning, the day of judgment, uh, and the second will come like a thief in the night. And that, too, is not necessarily an original idea or even expression with Paul. The word thief, uh, kleptos, the word, our word kleptomaniac, along with this compulsion to steal things, uh, comes from that word. And it occurs in a number of places. Uh, Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 43, Uh, in verse 36, uh, Jesus says, concerning that day, no one knows, not even the angels nor the Son. Uh, but then we go on down to verse 43. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Now, he's just said in verse 42, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But you know, if the master had known when the thief was coming, he would not allow his house to be broken into. So that idea there, the idea of the, the day of the Lord being like a thief coming in the night. Second um, Peter, another uh, instance of this expression. Second Peter 3, verse 10. Um, Peter is discussing the, the return of the Lord and those who... Uh, Actually, a very similar passage to ours in First Thessalonians of people saying, "Where is this coming? You know, where's the with the promise coming? Where is this return?" And this is where Peter says, "With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years; a thousand years are like a day. He's not slow in fulfilling his promise." Verse ten, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And and Peter may well have been reflecting Jesus' own expression from Matthew twenty-four here. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And this occurs a couple of times in Revelation. Uh, the idea of this, the, the being like a thief in the night. Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, a letter written to the church in Sardis, one of the uh, well-known letters to the seven churches. Uh, Revelation 3, verse 3. Uh, Jesus says to this church, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And then again, Revelation 16, verse 15. Behold, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Might be a good sermon text one day. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. But the point there, again, Jesus himself is saying, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Now, Jesus said it back in Matthew 24. We find it taught here in 1 Thessalonians. Peter, probably having heard Jesus, repeats this teaching in Second Peter. 
Uh, Jesus uses it when he speaks to the church in Sardis, and again it's repeated here, coming like a thief in the night. Um, Well, we begin to get the point. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know at what time or day that this will happen, and so it is necessary that we are prepared for his return at all times. Now, we want to come back to that, but first we want to go on and look at just a little bit more here. Not only will it come like a thief in the night, but uh, as, as we read in Second Peter 3, uh, before the verse we did read, um, and also here, people will be going about their business with most people, the world, without any thought about it one way or the other. Look at verse 3. While people are saying, there is peace and security. You're going around, peace, security, everything's fine. What are you so worked up about? Everything's okay. You know, like the people in Noah's day saying, you know, there's not a cloud in the sky. What are, you, what are you building this boat for, Noah? While they're saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So they'll be going about their daily business, just normal routine, activities of life, uh, their business, their vocation, their work, whatever it might be, um, without giving it really a second thought that there is coming a day of accountability, a day of reckoning. We read about that, or you can read about it in Second Peter chapter 3, where people say, where is this coming, you promise, and so forth. And other passages in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, speak of the people who um, have no concern for the day of the Lord, whatever. However, he says, while they're saying there's peace and security, then this sudden destruction will come upon them. And Peter describes that in Second Peter 3, as we've seen. Now, again, the idea of the thief in the night, the idea that his coming is unexpected. Uh, no one knows when their house would be broken into. Uh, if you knew, you, you'd be prepared. You'd have the lights on. You'd have the police there. You'd be there with your shotgun, whatever it takes. But the, the very point uh, of success for a thief is surprise, is, is to be unexpected, unknown, not prepared for. And that's the point here. The return of Christ will be unexpected, uh, at least as to its specific time. Now, as we'll see, as, as God's people, it should never catch us totally off guard, but certainly in, in, as far as the world, it's something completely unexpected. And then he goes on to use this analogy of, of a woman in labor, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Now, uh, a pregnant woman knows that labor pains are coming. That, that's not unexpected. That's not a surprise. You've got a baby growing in there, and the baby's going to come out one day. And so, and you know approximately when. The exact time may be a surprise, but you know it's coming. And the point here is not so much it's unexpected as it's unavoidable. A woman who is pregnant is facing the day of delivery. That is coming. It is unavoidable. The exact time may not be known, but she will not escape it. Um, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So the, thief, the point of the thief in the night is that it's unexpected. The point of the woman in labor is that it is inevitable. It is unavoidable. In fact, that's what, what Paul says here. They're, they will not escape. There is no getting around it. There is no way you can take a waiver and miss the second coming, take a buy and escape uh, the day of reckoning. It's simply inescapable. Uh, it is unavoidable. Uh, in the first case, there will be no warning. In the second case, there will be no escape. And so that's what Paul is writing here, is that the suddenness of Christ's return. Now, 
He's written mainly here uh, with an eye toward the world. But then he goes on to talk about not only the suddenness of it, but the implications of Christ's return for those of us who are Christians. Verses 4 through 8. The implications. What does it mean for us? Verse 4. Christians should not be surprised at the fact of the reality of Christ's return. The time, perhaps, but not the reality. Verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Now, Paul is using almost uh, Apostle John-like uh, imagery here. John is very fond of, of dualisms, of opposites. And one of his favorites is that of light and darkness. In John 1, the light has come and the darkness has not overcome it. First uh, John, he, he uh, likes to speak of the light and the darkness. And Paul almost sounds like John here. In, in using this picture, but that's what he's saying here. As Christians, we're not in the darkness. We are not uh, uninformed for that day to surprise you like a thief, to catch us entirely off guard, to be astounded that it happens. Uh, we may not know when, but we know that it will in fact happen, and so we're not totally caught by surprise. We're children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So again, it's not that we don't know exactly when he's coming, but we do know that he is, and we're not entirely unprepared. And so, therefore, we ought to live in light of Christ's return. Look at verses 6 through 8. So then, let us not sleep as others do. Now, earlier he was talking about sleep in terms of death, as a euphemism for death. Uh, Back in verse 13, do not be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as as others do who have no hope. Well, here... He's not talking about death when he mentions sleep. He's talking about being in a stupor. He's talking about not being uh, out of touch, not being uh, out of, out of uh, focus as far as what is going to be happening, unaware. We're not, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, the world, verse 7, those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. You see, as he reckons that here, the world, at least as far as Christ's return goes, is asleep, it's drunk, it's in the dark, not prepared for anything. A thief can come in, a thief can do as he will, and then they'd be totally unaware, totally caught off guard, totally unprepared. That's the world, asleep, drunk, and in the dark. However, the Christian is not, verse 6. Let us not sleep, let us keep awake, let us be sober. You see, with the Christian there is an awareness, there is an alertness, there is a comprehension of the picture. Uh, When Christ returns, uh, we will not be astounded, we will not be shocked. The world will be, but we will not be. And so we should be aware of that. Verse 8, then the Christian is clothed in a certain way. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Now, Paul is basically speaking here in a shorthand way of the ethical implications of Christ's return. And you're familiar with his his triad, faith, hope, and love, 1 Corinthians 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. That's not the only place that occurs. In fact, if you'll turn over to 1 Thessalonians 1, You'll remember back to, what, September when we studied this passage. 
Um, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So commending these qualities in them, their faith-producing works, their, their love-producing labor, and their hope-producing a, a perseverance, a steadfastness uh, in, in their witness and in their Christian living. And so it comes back here, the, the return of Christ. We should be alert, sober, certainly literally sober in the sense of not drunk, but sober in the sense of aware, uh, perceiving the times, knowing the times, um, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of the hope of salvation. And so uh, the ethical implications of faith, hope, and love being characteristic of the way that we live uh, because of Christ's coming. Very similar to what Peter writes, by the way, Second Peter chapter two or chapter three, passage we looked at earlier, uh, in verse eleven, Peter says, "Since all these things <clears throat> are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for it, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn." But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We ought to live differently because we anticipate and look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when he returns, we would want him to find us being obedient to him. We would want him to find us uh, living for him in lives characterized by faith, by hope, and by love. Because not only do we want him to find us doing those things, but when he does come, uh, we know that that means a reckoning, an accounting. And so we want to be faithful servants when our master returns. So Christians should live in light of Christ's return. So we've looked at the suddenness of it, the implications of it, but then also hear the outcome of it. What, is it, what does it ultimately mean? Look at verse 9. First of all, it means for us salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's always tricky and difficult to um, match up God's sovereignty in salvation and human responsibility in salvation. Uh, certainly we are called upon to repent and believe, but we're able to do so only because of God's prior grace to make our hearts alive, spiritually speaking, where once we were dead. We are the dead bones of Ezekiel 37 that God puts together and breathes life into. That was us prior to conversion and then after regeneration, uh, prior to uh, the Spirit's making us alive and blowing breath of life into us, into our soul. On the other hand, uh, we can't blame God if we aren't believers, if we don't become Christians. It's our sin. It's our rebellion. Um, and Paul sort of intermingles the two here. He says, this is how you ought to live in light of Christ's return. In verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Because of God's purpose, this is how you will, in fact, live. Living lives of faith in Christ, hope in his salvation. Um, and love for one another who share that salvation. So they sort of inter, inter 
intertwines those two ideas of God's purpose in salvation, but also our, our response to the knowledge of Christ's return. But the out, one outcome is salvation. And praise God, he did not destine you to wrath. What a terrifying thing to think of those whom he has destined to wrath. See, um, Romans, Romans 11, uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11 uh, Romans 9, where Paul speaks about the vessels of destruction, and God raising up Pharaoh for destruction to show the riches of his grace and his mercy. God did not, if you were in Christ, God did not destine you for wrath, and the very fact that you have repented and believed in Christ is, is the evidence and indeed the fruit of that. So one outcome of Christ's return for us is salvation. Yes, we'll be called to account. Yes, there will be a final reckoning and yet for the person in Christ, uh, the outcome is already assured that we would be with the Lord in heaven because of what Christ has done for us. Uh, the second outcome then brings us uh, to heaven, verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, and he's going back to his prior use of the word asleep in the sense of whether we are alive at Christ's return, whether we have died before Christ's return and are raised up on that day, we might live with him. Now, a couple of ideas in this verse. One is Christ's atoning death. Uh, verse 10a, uh, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Uh, could not find a simpler, plainer statement of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus dying in the sinner's place than, than Paul states right here. And this is, uh, again, perhaps the earliest letter of Paul that we have, and, and very early on. Uh, while this isn't quite the theological treatise that, for say, Romans would be, uh, Paul is, is basing everything on Christ's substitution in, in our place. But also our secure position uh, in the verse 10. Whether we have been long dead and in the grave, our souls with the Lord in heaven at his return, whether we are alive at his return, uh, we lose nothing, and again, we're not at any disadvantage one way or the other. Either way, we will live with him. We will be with him in glory. We will be with him in heaven, raised up, glorified, imperishable, incorruptible. And then the third outcome that Paul mentions here is not only salvation and therefore being with Jesus in heaven, but also, as he mentions here, fellowship. Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage one another. Now remember, he, he's used the same language back in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There, he's referring to encouraging one another in the face of, of the loss of a loved one, in the face of bereavement. Encourage one another with the fact that that loved one is not lost. They will not miss out. If they've died in Christ, they'll be raised up. They'll take part uh, in the return of Christ. They will be there on that great day. They lose nothing by having already died before Jesus returned. Well, here, the, the point of encouragement is a little bit different. To encourage one another in, I would suggest, what he referred to earlier, in faith, hope, and love, in living the Christian life. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing uh, with the knowledge that Christ is coming back uh, to encourage each other in faithfulness in the Christian life, to build one another up as we follow Christ together. And again, the doctrine, the idea of the communion of the saints uh, is very much present there, that we're not living the Christian life as isolated individual believers, but we live the Christian life as a body of believers. That's why it's so important that you 
uh, are part of a church, that we are part of a body of believers, so that we do encourage and build up one another. Because the reality is, whether it's comfort in the face of death, uh, or whether it's just that last bit of motivation we need in living the Christian life, Christ is coming back. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for that glorious truth. We thank you that, uh, Lord, that those who have died are sec- in the Lord are secure in Christ. They will be raised up. Lord, help us to live as those uh, who will give an account, those who do look forward to your return, our Lord and Master. Lord, we would not be in the darkness, we would not be in the night, but as those who live in the day and therefore are able to see the reality to see that there is a king and that he is coming back to that which is his own. Lord, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters that we would be prepared for that day. Lord, we would pray that that might come in our own lifetime, that it might be our privilege to be the generation that, alive on this earth, welcomes back our Lord Jesus. But Lord, whether asleep or awake, we long for that day and long for the new heavens and the new earth. We pray uh, that the day would come quickly. We pray it in Jesus' name.